0: Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. I'm a principal and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency obsessed with meaningful impact. Today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with new author, digital marketing strategist, and singer of Silly Songs, our very own Tim Hickel. Tim and I talk about being a non-designer within an agency writing his very first book, Our Hold Music, and the launch of this very podcast. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tim Hickel. All right, guys, today I have something a little bit different for you. I am excited to introduce you to Tim Hickel, who's the digital marketing strategist for Miles Herndon. Tim, welcome to Obsessed with Design.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, um, most of you guys would not know this or maybe not have reason to know this, but Tim has been a bit of the man behind the curtain for this show. And uh, actually, we have some other exciting things to talk through today or things that I think our listeners will find interesting as well. Um, But Tim, I'm going to go ahead and out you and say, Tim is not a designer.
1: You might say I'm not obsessed with design either. (laughs)
0: take it back. (laughs) Well, anyhow, we are going to talk through Tim, uh, in similar ways to how we've done most of our shows in the past, but I promise this is worth, um, sticking with and listening to even if, uh, maybe you are new to the world of digital marketing, but I'm curious to hear, uh, Tim's experience of, of working with us over the last few years and, We may get into the podcast story and and learn a little bit about uh, some little side projects that Tim's been up to. Does that sound like a plan? Sounds great to me. Cool. Well, just like we would with all of our other guests, Tim, um, you have quite the peculiar origin story. So without spoiling any of it, tell us a little bit about how you got to be uh, a non-designer employee in a design and branding agency in Indianapolis.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, So I, all throughout high school and college, was a comedian. Uh, I loved comedy, did a lot of improv, sketch, and stand-up comedy. And I thought I was going to be the next member member of SNL before I realized I didn't have the face for it. Um, So (laughs) while I was doing that, concurrently, I was studying economics at IU. And I hit this weird crossroads towards the end of college where I – knew on one hand I didn't want to be a comedian because I didn't want to live on ramen, but I also knew that I didn't want to be an economist because as much as I liked data analysis and I love jumping into Excel and finding statistical correlations, uh, it was kind of boring to do for 40 hours a week. So uh, I accidentally fell into the startup tech scene here in Indianapolis and found my way into a software-as-a-service company called Perk. Uh, so I joined there immediately after I graduated college as the junior man on their marketing team. And I quickly figured out that I had this weird skill set that positioned me really well in a marketing space. So with my background as a creative, I knew that I couldn't walk into a room full of creatives and be the most creative person. But if I walked into a room filled with analytical people, I was more creative than than all of them. Uh, and when I walked into a room filled with analytical people, I was never the most analytical person in the room, but I was more creative than all of them. So it was this weird kind of like when you're playing pickup basketball and you realize that, man, I might be the worst player on this court, but I can find a mismatch where I'm just a little bit faster than the slowest guy on the other team. <laughs> it it kind of <laughs> felt a lot like that early on in my career. So I took full advantage of that and it helped me, uh, Elevate and escalate my career in a lot faster fashion than I think I normally would have been able to do. Uh, so I got really involved in the startup community here in town. Got involved with Verge. Uh, did a lot of cool work with Matt Hunkler, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And Matt was the one who actually introduced us uh, to start working together. And yeah, I found my way here when you're looking to expand into some digital marketing work. And uh, ever since then, I've been working with you running a podcast, uh, and launching web and email content for clients
0: for two years now. So maybe this is a deep question to jump off with, but what would you say has been like your biggest learning working around a bunch of people who are obsessed with design?
1: Well, one thing that I got really good at early in my time here was recognizing my own deficiencies. Uh, It's really important to understand when you're working with people that are really uh, hyper-obsessed with something, that are really analytical in one particular area, it's important to understand that I'm never going to be there. And And rather than me trying to compete, trying to talk at the same level as them, just shut up and listen. Um, early on in my time here, there were several designers that I worked with that I looked at and said, man, you just know more about typography than I'm ever going to know. So I'm going to, I'm not going to learn how to speak your language. I'm going to learn how to ask the right questions that are going to get you talking for 20 minutes, because that's the only way I'm ever going to learn what you're great at is by really listening at a deep level. And we may never speak the same language and I may never fully understand typography or iconography uh, in the way that you understand it. But I know that if I'm able to listen effectively, I can learn a lot more than I could ever learn by talking.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of our listeners who could relate to that statement as well. And that, um, you know, when we deal with clients of various types and shapes and sizes, and especially new industries, or even if you work in the same industry every day, every client's going to have a little bit different business problem and our job isn't to necessarily become experts in structural engineering or in nonprofits or how to recruit for a university but but our job is to listen to each of those challenges individually and to figure out what our what our best way to help is and to you know uh <laughs> it's a little bit of the jack of all trades, but it, you know we we end up learning a little bit of each of these industries, and I think it's just a an interesting place for a, a curious person to to work day to day.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it's I think more than anything else, it's uh, reemphasized to me the point that. You will never be an expert in everything, and it's perilous to try. I mean, you're much better off figuring out what you're good at and listening to everyone else because uh, I I think my best work that I've done here and everywhere else for that matter has come when I have done a good job of knowing when to pass the ball, and that's something that I think a lot of people struggle with.
0: Tim, maybe for the benefit of everybody listening, maybe tell us a little bit about what your – average day or week looks like here and kind of what your, what your day-to-day role is at Miles Herndon?
1: I don't think I have a day-to-day role. Um, I think that every day is different. Every day is unique. And, uh, the biggest thing for me, a lot of my day resonates around, uh, writing. There's a ton of writing going on in my day-to-day, a lot of email marketing, a lot of content marketing, um, and a lot of consulting with clients. I think, uh, I view part of my job as being a liaison between the business interests of both our organization and our clients' organizations, and the creative interests of us doing really great, high quality work, which sometimes I think people get too stuck in the idea of those two things being diametrically opposed. When I think the only, really, the only way to do great creative work is if it's accomplishing business objectives of both us and our clients.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. One of the things that you just touched on briefly and I I feel like you have a unique point of view in this is uh is email marketing. So maybe for the benefit of our listeners, let's talk a little bit about um your perspective on how to handle those B2B email messages and you know what to do with the dreaded monthly newsletter.
1: Uh I so email marketing is something I'm very opinionated on. Um I the phrase I use all all the time is you know I talk about software as a service, I also believe email is a service. So uh in the same way that SaaS companies focus on using their software in a service based model, I think every email marketer, whether you're designing the email, writing the content or the one that's actually managing the sending and automation of email, needs to be focused on how can we leverage email as a service as opposed to just a promotional thing that we are sending out and hope works. Um, That's the number one folly of most marketers I talk to that mess with email is they view it as as a communications channel rather than a service that they are providing someone else who has a need for information. So when you receive bad emails over and over and over again, it's not because email as a channel is dead. I hear that all the time. I hear people always talk about email as a channel is dying. Email as a channel is, it's not dying. We have more email users today than we've ever had in the history of the internet. That's not going away. That's not trending down. Um, The problem that we have is a lot of people use email as a marketing channel horrendously, and then they complain that it doesn't work. This is true of email design, it's true of email development, and it's true of actual the messaging that's used in email. If you're not focusing every single email around what value am I providing to the uh, end user in this email, then you're not going to get results from it. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's a problem. That's a very real problem. It's a problem that we've seen. Uh, with ourselves at times it's a problem we've seen with clients it's a problem i've seen all around town here in indianapolis you know we pride ourselves on being very good at email marketing here and that's true of some companies and some companies it's absolutely false so one thing that i challenge email marketers of all stripes uh, to focus on is every single send needs to be packed with value and if it's not you don't send it period
0: mm-hmm, so if we um rewind to where a typical email was coming out from me before you got here, it might have been broken up into a couple sections. I might send it out every two weeks or maybe every twelve weeks, and it really just depended so there was a great variety in in how often we were sending them the cadence, if you will and uh you know those those sections were typically. Um, you know, I might have a little blurb about a blog post and then tease a link to that. And then I might feature like three pieces of work and a few sentences about the client and what their problem was. So when you showed up here, your philosophy as to, uh, maybe the wisest use of that email channel for us was, was quite different from that. So maybe talk us through, uh, what you had recommended and, and how we operate email differently today.
1: The, I think the phrase that I use constantly with you, uh, and I didn't mean it disrespectfully, but I meant it honestly, is no one cares. And that's something that I use with a lot of clients because no one does care. No one cares about you. No one cares about your brand. No one cares about what you know news item you put on your blog. No one, no one really cares. How is that adding value to their life? And uh, it's a really hard barrier for some people to get over. I was very lucky with you because you adopted that immediately. <laughs> and... The quicker people buy into that philosophy, (laughs) the easier their marketing life becomes. But the sad truth of the matter is it doesn't matter how effective you are at building a brand. It doesn't matter how effective you are at generating leads. If you're not providing value to every person that you touch, no one cares about you. And that's a big fallacy that we have because we as marketers, and especially here at a branding agency, these brands are our babies. I mean, you spend months developing a brand voice, a brand identity and establishing a visual identity that is unique in the marketplace and it feels very special because it is. Um, but to the average user, it means nothing until you associate value with it. Once you start associating real value with that brand, all of a sudden it establishes a connection that you can't replace. Um, but unfortunately too many people do the front end of the work and then don't worry about the back end. So when I took over your email platform, the first thing that we did was we stripped it down to figure out, right, how can we, if we were selling, this as a course, if we were charging $50 per user, uh, to get on your email list, what value would we provide? Uh, how do we turn this into something that we believe people would pay not just their email address for, but real tangible currency? Let's hold it to that standard.
0: And once we held it, which, by the way, if anybody wants to contribute $50 <laughs> who's receiving my emails, I'd be happy to send you a PayPal link or
1: something. <laughs> well, once we held it to that standard, it became a lot more obvious what does and does not make sense. You know, once we sat down and we started going through email automation and we said, all right, well, here's a welcome email that kind of gives them an idea of who we are as a company. But oh, anyone pay $50 for this? No. But when we say, here's an email that's packed with all the best resources on branding that we've ever published, yeah, people might pay for that. And so we broke it into a branding 101 course, and a branding 102 course. Um, We allowed people to ask you questions directly in a one-on-one consultative uh, session. Uh, We did a lot of things that were, I don't want to say unique because there are plenty of other smart people in the space doing this. That are exceedingly rare in the email marketing space because too many people are focused on this very myopic view of uh, how can I create an email that delivers a return on my investment today? Not how can I build something that can nurture these email contacts into real sustainable business leads over the course of the next five years?
0: And so the crazy thing is, and I I know it's not just the email itself, but the crazy thing is not only that we totally shifted this, but the subscriber rate and the, um, sort of the open and click through, basically the highly engaged readers, um, jumped off the charts. So where, where I thought people were tuning in to my email because we had the latest pretty thing that we had made and it, it turns out they were, they were actually there for the potential for point of view which is a hundred percent of what they get now, as opposed to anything else.
1: Well, and something else we did really effectively was we listened. Um, When we were setting up these automation channels, uh, we listened to what users were doing uh, and we reacted when we saw that certain emails were getting dramatically higher open rates than others. We said, okay, great. We should be leaning into that content a lot more heavily and the stuff that people aren't opening or they aren't clicking on, maybe that's something that people don't really care about. Maybe we can take that out. And that's important, not just, you know, people think that's important in an ethereal sense because, oh, we really should be giving customers what they want, and it is, but it's also important in in an actual tangible sense uh, when you look at what email providers are doing. So Gmail is the leader, in this respect, because they are the ones who do it most effectively. But it's also true of Microsoft Outlook, it's true of every email platform that is in the mainstream. They use user behavior data, like open rates, like click-through rates, uh, like whether people delete or Flag or mark as spam. Or if you're on Gmail, you know, there's, there's those little important stars. If someone clicks an important star or drags something over to a folder where maybe they keep important emails, Gmail is tracking all of that by your sender's uh, ISP. So if you are sending a bunch of emails that people aren't opening, aren't reading, aren't clicking on links inside of, um, then Gmail is going to know moving forward, all right, when something gets sent from this IP, it's probably not a good email because I know on average only X percent open that email as opposed to over here, this other IP, sending really, really valuable information, not sending anything to people who aren't highly engaged. I know that they're really valuable because they only send stuff that people open. They only send stuff that people click on. So while I think I like the idea of highly engaged email users because it feels really good for people to be highly engaged. It also makes sense from a business perspective because you're going to be continued to be filtered out by Gmail and Outlook and other email providers if you're not actively paying attention to who's opening what and filtering them out as you go.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. So not only did Tim, dear listener, tell me that nobody cares when he read my emails, but, um, Tim, do you remember what you told me when I said, I'm ready to launch a podcast? I said, no. Uh, when you, when, <laughs> exactly. when you first interviewed me,
1: you said, oh, I want to start a podcast. And I said, you're not allowed, which is a weird thing to say to a guy that's trying to hire you. <laughs> uh, but, uh, one of the things that I think has really helped this podcast be successful is the fact that, uh, when we launched, we had, An effective user base to send emails to. And we had a really strong stream of people coming in from organic search. Uh, It was all about building a foundation because the tactic of launching a, a podcast is really fun and exciting, and it's a great thing to do. And now that we've launched it, we've seen a lot of success. I've been really proud of the podcast that we put out, but back when you first hired me, you were ready to put out good content but you weren't ready to, from an inbound marketing perspective to put out something that was going to have a large enough listenership to get you in new and noteworthy sections, to get you on the top 50 charts on iTunes. Um, we were able to rack up a bunch of listeners because we had a user base we could email to. And because we had 25,000 people a month coming in through the website just through organic search, I mean those are the things that once we hit that level where we were having that level of success, then it becomes a lot easier to launch something like a podcast successfully that we can have. Not only can we interview people like Paula Scher and Debbie Millman who are incredible design minds, but we can distribute that to a large enough sample of people that we can get that traction and move forward.
0: You know, as a total side point, I'm not sure if you noticed this week, but on Tim Ferriss' show this week, he had Debbie Millman as his guest. So that'll It'll date this episode a little bit, but it's it was kind of cool listening to somebody else interviewing Debbie.
1: So, what you're saying is we are trendsetters and Tim <laughs> Ferriss is taking after us.
0: <laughs> Those are the words of Tim, <laughs> not necessarily the opinion of obsessed. With
1: Get at me, Tim. Let's go. I'm the real Tim in the podcast game.
0: <laughs> I always say everybody needs a Tim. <laughs> what has been your biggest surprise or biggest learning? with the podcast.
1: So I think that, uh, when we first started the podcast, I kind of assumed that it was going to get really homogenous really quickly because, uh, my exposure to really, really, really talented design minds, like director level design minds had been, small enough that I'd kind of assumed you talk to one, you talk to them all, you know, <laughs> how many different perspectives could you possibly get on, on uh, graphic design? I was shocked early on as I started going through and producing some of these episodes, uh, seeing the real diversity in experiences that come from the world's best designers. If anything, I think that uh, it's, proven to me that these experiences are by definition heterogeneous because they have to be. You can't have a unique take on design unless you have a unique experience. And uh, if these ideas or if these experiences really were so homogenous, all design would look the same and it doesn't. So I've been really, really impressed. My perspective has shifted dramatically as I've heard the stories of some of the world's most talented designers. Um, I've learned things in a way that I don't think I could have through gaining my own experience alone.
0: And uh, just so everybody's clear, um, maybe you walk us through what quote unquote producing an episode looks like and what's involved in, you know, to most people have only experienced a podcast ever from their, you know, from the ears in. Uh, they haven't experienced what goes into getting it on iTunes and and how all that happens. So maybe at a high level, walk us through what that looks like.
1: Yeah. So we, uh, so what I'm responsible for is a lot of scheduling the guests, finding the guests, getting all that set up uh, and then uh, managing the workflow of getting, we have a wonderful editor we work with. uh, So I work with her to get uh, episodes back from her and, Up on We we use a product called Libsyn, uh, which helps us send it out not only to iTunes, but to SoundCloud and a bunch of other uh, syndication partners, Uh, and then taking show notes, getting those show notes up, uh, and then getting it promoted on social media. So there's just kind of a lot of little tiny things, little tiny nuts and bolts that need to just be screwed in that I'm responsible for as we work through the process.
0: Do you have... Maybe I won't pin you down to a favorite guest, but do you have any favorite moments from the show over the course of this first year?
1: I think that it's hard. That's really hard because there are so many wonderful moments. Um, The, uh, the interview that really to me was the moment that I said, wow, I think we have something really special on our hands with Sam Vasquez. There were a lot of great mm-hmm. interviews you did, but the interview with Sam Vasquez was the one that tipped me over the edge from "this is a good podcast" to "wow, we have something really special going on here." Um, you know, I talk about those the divergence and experience, and I think he has one of the most unique stories of anyone we've interviewed. This is a guy who came to the U.S. when he was 12 years old and uh, was you know spent his entire childhood growing up in Brooklyn, obsessed with. Uh, street art and graffiti on the trains uh it, hearing his story and his background and how he got into designs uh it was fascinating for me because I just always thought of designers as the people that I knew in college who studied art <laughs> they studied art they realized they couldn't be artists professionally and they got into graphic design you know I had this very this, this very uh opaque view of what uh, a designer looked like. And Sam Vasquez really just shattered that in a way that no other guest did. So I think that was probably the one interview I'd point to and say, if, if anyone listening has not listened to that interview, it's a while back. It was probably our, our second month, uh, into the show, mm. but it's a really good interview. It's a must listen in my
0: book. Yeah. Coincidentally, uh, interesting timing on that. Sam is actually, moving his family back to New York uh in the next month or so and focusing on his uh his fine art studio again so Wow. Uh, we
1: did we did not plan this guys. That was not planned at all. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right. So one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about Tim is I don't know if this is necessarily coming across in the interview but Tim is is a downright silly guy sometimes and will do things that just make us laugh out loud in ways that, that other people don't, (laughs) but
1: that was a, that was a very nice way of saying
0: this is a boring interview. (laughs) That's not at all, but I I don't think (laughs) the full level of silly is coming across is what I'm saying. And that's okay. But I remember distinctly one day that I was working remotely and you posted a file to our Slack channel that said our new hold music. And I had my headphones in because I was listening to music while I was working in this coffee shop or whatever. And I listened to it. And it's this track of Tim uh, singing our hold music a cappella. in from what best I could tell. He was just sort of making up as he went. And it's it's somewhere in between um, 80s big hair rock and a jingle uh with with no accompaniment. So it's it's just Tim's voice and he is so over the top, like emotional and sincere about it. And I was just like in tears in this coffee shop laughing so hard at a thing that nobody else could hear or know what was going on. For I was I was seriously a little bit embarrassed that people are going to think there's something wrong with me. <laughs> but but today, you know, fast forward a few months, it took us a minute to figure out the logistics of this, but that is now our hold music. It is unedited we We thought about even adding a backing track, and we thought, you know what never mind it's it's great as it is, but when the world got into you to record that in the <laughs> first place and I guess talk us through your thoughts on using something so crazy as hold music
1: Well, so I will uh break form and give you the silly answer first uh so i uh because I have a background in improv uh, comedy, I love making up silly songs. It's my favorite thing. It's uh, I don't believe we were put on this earth to take it very seriously. Um, I think it's a really <laughs> it's a really grave mistake we all make on a daily basis as we walk around with all these things on our shoulder when we could just be singing silly songs about poop. It really, it, it doesn't matter. None, none of this is matters. We're all gonna die someday. We might as well enjoy this. Uh, so I take great pride in my, uh, my horrendous singing voice and uh, my ability to uh, come up with sometimes very good silly songs and sometimes very bad silly songs. I, I go out of my way to try to be a little bit sillier than normal. Sometimes that takes a really, really free form, like our hold music. Other times, I have a, I have one song that I love that I still sing in the shower. I just, I just sang one day when I was at work, and uh, I still sing it probably twice a week, three times a week. Uh, just, what if God was Pizza Hut, <laughs> just a slob like Pizza Hut. Just a stranger pizza hut trying to make his way home. Um because I think it's silly. It's fun. It's it's fun to imagine an anthrop- anthropomorphic god that is actually a pizza hut, uh that's sitting on a bus, it's trying to make his way home. It's just it's fun, it's silly. Uh so I enjoy it. It's it's uh That is how I get through hard days. That's also how I get through fun days. Now, pivoting that to the way I rationalize using this as hold music, (laughs) I, uh, I genuinely believe that we talk all the time with our clients about brand touch points. And... We talk about big brand touch points all the time. We t- you know, think about email marketing. Every time you send out an email, that's a touch point. Every time you post something on social media, that's a touch point. Those are very obvious things. And they're things that you think about a lot as a marketer, but there are a lot more subtle brand touch points that people overlook constantly. So uh, for example, we did, a, uh, we did an internal day here that uh, we called a ghost day. Uh, where we were focused on getting our stuff together um, and focusing more on internal projects. And one of the things we focused on was uh, having a wayfinding setup. So if you come into our our building, it's kind of an older building, so it's a little bit hard to navigate sometimes Mm -hmm. because you have all these old uh, walls that have weird old wiring in them. And so sometimes you can take down walls, sometimes you can't. So you get into our space and it's kind of hard to navigate. So one of the things we talked about was, all right, well, how do we make it so that when you come off the elevators, when you get into our office, we really greet you right in the face. You know, it's just, it hits you right in the face that you're in the right place and this is where you're supposed to be. Little touch points like that get overlooked every single day by small brands and
0: huge brands.
1: And one of the ones that I think is most overlooked is hold music because I spend a lot of time on hold uh, between calling my cable company and dealing with bills and you know, whatever else I spend a lot of time on hold. It's a pain and every single hold music that is out there sounds exactly the same. The example, I wrote a blog post about this and the example I used is Cisco. Cisco, the company has boring, generic jazz hold music. There is an R&B artist named Cisco. How hard would it be for Cisco to team up with Cisco and create the world's greatest hold music? Not hard. This is a multi-billion dollar (laughs) company that can't spring the little bit of cash it would take to get Cisco to record new hold music for them. Uh, And that would take their... Customer experience to a whole nother level. So I look at I looked at our hold music as a, an area where, if we could surprise and delight one customer, because we changed up our hold music, then we've done our job. And I believe that just like we always talk to our clients about, you need to be very deliberate about the messaging you use because you don't. It's not just that you want to attract the right client; it's you want to repel the wrong client. So uh, I think that. Based on what I've seen with our team, any client that would look at our silly hold music and say, "Man, that's really unprofessional," is probably not someone we want to work with. They probably take themselves a little more seriously than uh, our creative director would like to
0: work with. Uh, you know, we have a well. That's even going back to our conversation with Where Stewart. You know, one of the things that I love about those guys are the silly videos that they put on Instagram that i feel like you just totally get their personality and and they talked about the same thing that it's sort of this litmus test that that if that video freaks somebody out and keeps them from calling us then good riddance and it's uh, so I, I think it's a not only a differentiator and something that is you know as you said would surprise and delight but it's also a really great way that if somebody is too uptight to think silly hold music is okay then then okay then maybe we're not a good fit
1: yeah, absolutely. And it's and you know, if you're using design as a more broad based term, you know, if you're really designing every single user's experience from the first time they see your name till the time they make a purchase, you should be deliberate about everything that goes on from point A to point Z. And too many people overlook small things like that mm-hmm. that could be I mean you never know, especially with you know professional services firms. I mean, let's think about uh, our average client. We use a lot. We work with a lot of professional service firms: architecture firms, engineering firms, uh, construction firms. We work a lot with a lot with these people that you know meddle in huge deal sizes. Uh, their average deal size is huge, and they're one of three or five people at the table when they're uh, in the process of. Negotiating these deals, anything you can do to increase your conversion rate by 2% is giant. I mean, that's the difference between making and uh, getting and losing a $100,000 deal. Um, and if you know of the five people at the table, four of them are using identical Hold Music or four of them have the exact same in-office experience, or four of them are giving away the exact same collateral, the exact same type of goodies. It pays dividends to differentiate yourself.
0: Now, what if you had a, uh, a book of how you think and sort of your, your approach to things to handle? That out? would
1: also be a really good way to differentiate <laughs> yourself,
0: Josh. Well, speaking of which, Tim has actually just finished up his first book is awesome and I I love that he incorporates his sense of humor and levity throughout the book. I especially love the um the fake quotes. <laughs> but maybe talk us through when when you released the book initially uh, a few weeks back now. You sort of did it with a beta test in mind. So talk us through what that was about.
1: Yeah, so like I said earlier, I got my start in the startup space and so In that area, uh, there's one book that is kind of everyone's God, which is The Lean Startup. Everyone uses The Lean Startup as their Bible. And for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a great book to read. But the basic idea is if you're starting a company, you don't want to invest hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into developing a product that you don't know if anyone wants to buy. Instead, what you should do is you should build your minimum viable product or MVP you should get that to market as quickly as possible and then once it's in the market, then you ask people, hey what would you improve if you were making changes because you know this is just a start for us this is just a beta test this is just a beginning launch. Um, we're planning on making a lot of improvements. Uh, what would you improve and if you made if I made those improvements, how much would you be willing to pay for this product or service? So that does a lot of things. It helps the market craft your product in a way that makes sense. uh, And it helps you price yourself a lot more effectively because instead of you just guessing based on your gut reaction, what you want to charge for something, you can hear from the market what they're willing to pay and what they'd be willing to pay if you made changes um, that would make the product a lot better. So I said, well, if that works for products, it probably works for ideas too. So... When I initially wrote this book, what I did was I wrote the book. I worked with an editor and a great designer um, to produce my minimum viable product. And I uh, sent out 100 copies to 100 different marketers, all of whom my, my criteria was everyone that received this book had to have at least five years of experience in sales or marketing. Uh, and the reason I decided five was the number was because I wanted to crowdsource this to 500 years worth of experience. So if I could take my process, I can't go out and get 500 years of experience by myself. That would be impossible. What I can do is I can put all my ideas on paper as to if I was taking over a marketing department today, here's what I would do from beginning to end. And I can crowdsource 500 years worth of experience in all types of industries, from high tech to low tech, from really large companies to really small companies, from small businesses to startups to publicly traded companies and get 500 years worth of experience looking at my methodology and telling me what I should improve. Now, this led me to rethink a lot of ideas uh, that I initially had, but it also helped me catch typos that I probably never would have found, even with you know a professional editor and six months lead time mm-hmm. to try to crawl through the entire book. So it, I kind of took a product design approach to this where I decided I'm not going to focus on going up in my ivory tower and trying to be smart. I'm going to get this thing into as many hands as, of as
0: many smart people as I
1: can. and I'm going to find out what I'm doing wrong because that's going to be the best way for me to get the right answer.
0: Did you get a favorite either piece of advice from writing the book or something that you'd like to pass along to other um, would-be authors about how to jump into that kind of major undertaking?
1: Well, so I was surprised at how easy it was to write a book. Uh, And this is coming from the perspective of a writer. So I write for a living. I write e-guides all the time. So if you've ever written, if you're a marketer and you've ever written a 75-page e-guide, then you can write a book. It's a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder than a 75-page e-guide. If you can do that once you can go write a book. So I I was really surprised at how easy it was. But the thing that I really wish someone would have told me before I started on it is, hey, you should probably, you should probably be working a lot more closely with someone who's done this before. Because there are a lot of things that you do not learn until you've done it. Um, Little small user experience things that seem very obvious, like a table of contents. I didn't include a table of contents in my first edition of this book. (laughs) And when I, when I held the first copy of it in my hands, I opened the book and I realized immediately that I'd forgotten something and it felt really dumb to forget something so obvious. But if I was working really closely with someone who had done this before, I would have known that. So I really wish I would have taken that a little bit more seriously, but Outside of that, the, you know, my biggest takeaway was if you have any inkling to write a book, just do it. Just do it self-publish. Don't let anything hold you back because it's not – if you're a writer to begin with, it's not that hard. Um, and there are plenty of great resources out there that can help you uh, get them published and printed that are not very expensive. You don't need to – the days of – Going out, and having to buy five thousand copies of your book in order to get it printed or over. So,
0: so tell us um, what the the official title of the book is, and where people can find it.
1: My book is called the Future Proof Marketing Playbook. It is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, uh, to name a few. It's also available at Books a Million and a couple other uh, book distributors. But um, if you just if you go to Amazon, you type in the Future Proof Marketing Playbook, you'll find it.
0: All right, Tim, I've asked everybody on the show, designers included. So I'm curious, in your case, what you are most obsessed with right now.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, part of the reason I wrote this book is because I had uh, an itch that I just couldn't scratch without fully articulating this idea. But um, I was largely inspired. If, have you ever heard of the, game, uh, the book The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack? No. No, it's a great book, I'd highly recommend to everyone. Um, But I read this book when I first got started after I graduated college and uh, I loved it at the time. But something I didn't really realize until I started working in agency where I could get get experience with dozens of clients and dozens of different industries is how the great game of business is so mismanaged. Uh, by most marketers. So one of the things that I talk about a lot in my book, uh, I, I talk about, I, the analogy I use is uh, marketing is like football. And just like every single football team, uh, your marketing department has an offense, a defense, and a special teams. Everything falls into one of those three categories. So when you're working in a marketing department, your defense is your brand. Everything starts with your with defense, Defense wins championships, right? Your defense is what gives you the ability to mark off part of the field and not let your opponent score. That's your brand. Your brand is you marking off your territory uh, and not letting your opponent score there. Your offense is your lead generation strategy. That's how you generate leads. That's how you bring business in the door. That's what that's the sexy part of marketing. That's what people like to focus on when they talk about marketing. Uh, you know, the quarterback is what gets the girls, but – We are both Colts fans, Josh, so we know that it doesn't matter how good the quarterback is, they don't win Super Bowls alone. (laughs) Um, And your sales support is your special teams. So if you are working in an organization that doesn't focus heavily enough on supporting your sales process, it doesn't matter how many leads you bring in the door, and it doesn't matter how strong your brand is, your business's bottom line is still going to suffer. Your special teams is what puts your defense in a good position to defend their territory. And your special teams is what puts your offense in a position where they can score more easily. So uh, it's important to do all three of those things. And as I had started to work with dozens of clients across dozens of industries, what shocked me was the fact that people with 10, 20, 30 sometimes years of experience in marketing have this very myopic view that they really only need to focus on one of those things. Uh, A lot of people focus on generating leads or they focus on their brand and they focus on the, you know they act more as coordinators than they do as head coaches. So my big obsession over the past six months or so, ever since I started writing this, has been trying to sniff out the world's most effective marketers and figure out what commonalities they have. Trying to figure out what they all do alike that makes them so effective. And what I found through this obsessive looking at, uh, or this obsessive observation, is the world's most effective marketers aren't tacticians. They're not people that are really good at doing a thing. They're people who are really great strategists. They're chess players. They focus on how do I take these 10 channels that I'm using and use them all effectively. But if I'm a little bit suboptimal in one channel, that's okay as long as I'm optimizing all of my efforts towards one end goal. I've really been surprised to see that a lot of these marketers who are so effective at their jobs, sometimes are some of the worst at actually doing the marketing. Like I've been shocked to see how many effective strategists I've met that can't write, um, or how many effective strategists I've met who, not only can't, they can't design, they don't have an eye for design. They mm-hmm. wouldn't know what good design was if they hit them in the face. But their ability to not only generate leads in the short term, but generate long-term business results is unparalleled. That's been my big obsession is trying to find the world's best marketers and really get into their head to figure out how is it that you approach your job that makes you so good
0: at this? Excellent. You may have set a new record for the longest response to what you're most obsessed with, but... Um, well thought through and uh, and I appreciate that. So Tim, before we uh, totally wrap up here, maybe tell our listeners where they could find you on social media and track you down online.
1: So uh, what I love about my last name is no one else has it. So uh, I am at Tim Hickle on Instagram. I am at Tim Hickle on Twitter. Uh, I am linkedin.com backslash in backslash Tim Hickle. (laughs) It's uh, pretty easy to find. And uh, if anyone has any questions about marketing, digital marketing, uh, or uh, about the methodology behind my book, please reach out to me. I'm always happy to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, And you can also find my book on amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm sure we could have done at least a whole hour on email alone or the podcast alone, or we didn't even really get into the whole SEO and how that relates to design thing. Maybe we can do that next time, but listeners, if there's anything that uh, especially sparked your curiosity through Tim's conversation here today, let us know and uh, tweet to us at obsessed show and let us know what we should uh, follow up with, with uh, Mr. Tim Hickel. So Tim, thanks for joining us today as always. And thank you for producing obsessed with design. Okay, boys and girls, that is episode number 53 in the books. Do me a favor this week. Tell your closest design friend about this show and tell them why you listen. In fact, maybe in honor of Tim Hickel, tell your favorite non-designer why you listen to this show and let them know what you think they should listen for next time. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located on the 13th floor of beautiful Circle Tower in downtown Indianapolis. And if you'd like to get the feel for the kind of email messages we send here at Miles Herndon, you can sign up for my list and get my thoughts on brand strategy delivered to your inbox. Visit milesherndon.com josh. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Kazzy Joe, and our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit brassybroad.com for more info. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.